Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here uh, because our last episode ran a little long and I thought, let's just break off our last topic, which was reviewing the film Annihilation. Yeah, because we have sworn never to do another four-hour podcast. Yes, and if I can help it, three hours. Yeah. Special cases we can do it, like Black Panther. But, um, you know, Annihilation is already like two weeks old and it's probably going to be out of theaters by the time you hear this. So I thought, this is kind of an evergreen one. If you saw the movie, if you didn't see the movie, if you're waiting for it to come out on video. uh, I know we have listeners around the world who are about to get it on Netflix because it comes out next week on Netflix. So um, I might hold this for next week, depending on if we have time to record a show next week. I might just make it a bonus episode for this week. We shall see. I don't know yet. We are in suspense about this, but... This is the most wishy-washy intro we've ever done. (laughs) We are. we're, We're figuring out... Figuring it out along with the listener. We are, but what we're, we do know we're talking about Annihilation. All right? Are we? And why are we talking about Annihilation? It's because it's a movie we both saw. Yes. It is also a very interesting movie. I don't know if I actually like this movie. I like things about it an awful lot. Okay. I think it's a fascinating film. I also think where it fits in a moment we have been having this decade in film, where I think easily the most significant Hollywood you know, American film genre has been science fiction in the 2010s. If you look at the string of movies we have had throughout this decade of speculative and far-off science fiction that has done really interesting things, I don't know if you can point to any other one period where this many interesting adult artistic films in this genre were being made, and Annihilation is one of those um, but it's also of a kind that doesn't get made over here much. This is much more similar to, like, Soviet science fiction. Uh, obviously, many people have compared it to Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker, and it right, is yeah. it's, it is Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker in its basic plot, and in its style, it is very Tarkovsky-esque, while taking things from also, I would say, like, John Carpenter and how it does some of the body horror, and, you know, um, even recent sci-fi films from this decade, like Under the Skin, it has a lot of, I think it, it gets some of its boldness from... Maybe those kinds of images, but uh, or even stuff like it is clearly also of an aesthetic piece with like last year's Twin Peaks: The Return in a lot yeah. of ways. But it is a really interesting film to talk about, and so I wanted to make sure we get some time to talk about it. And it's winding up getting its own episode. Yeah. So there you go, Sean. Uh, that's kind of my basic opening salvo on why I want to talk about it. What about you? Yeah, this was a movie that just sort of, I think like as with most people, just kind of like popped up on my radar out of nowhere because it just kind of didn't really get any marketing. Like I literally didn't even see the trailer for this movie. Like it was just, I had heard about it on Twitter, just sort of like by people talking about, oh, this movie's really cool. And the little bits I heard about it sounded like this movie would be very much my kind of shit. And, I was, and, and as I kind of talked about on the last the last episode that we recorded with the Mario shit and all that stuff. Because I have no idea when this podcast is coming out. I don't know if it was actually the last episode. But the last one that we recorded, I sort of talked about, I had a very busy weekend. I was just sort of like, kind of like hitting a mental block with some stuff I needed to do. And just decided I needed to get out of the house and do something else. And so I just was like, hey, Dad, you want to go see a movie? And my dad and I went and, and saw Annihilation at the Denver West Movie Theater. Of the two movie theaters that are near my house... There's a one called the Colorado Mills Theater, which is in a big mall that has, was shut down for like almost an entire year, and I'm kind of concerned about that. The where that mall is going to go in the near future, uh, um, it's going to be demolished. That's what's yeah, going to happen in that mall, yeah. and it's amazing it hasn't happened ten years ago. Yeah, and then but then there's a Denver West Theater. Both of these are Regal theaters, so this yes. is like you know this is maybe isn't interesting to anybody to listen to, but 
I had not been in that Denver West Theater for years because all the movies that, like, nobody sees gets thrown in the Denver West Theater because it's about, like, 20 years older than the Colorado Mills Theater. And I was, like, almost, like, forgot, like, almost made the wrong turn. I was, like, oh, wait, right, I'm going to the other one, which actually has nicer chairs, which I was very surprised to, to discover. It's a nice little theater. Sometimes they fuck things up, but it's a nice little theater. It's better than the Colorado Mills Theater. Yes, it uh, is. Which is nice to discover. But yeah, so anyways, I that was sort of, you know, I don't usually get out to see movies that much. If I do, it's usually just to see comic book movies because I like them and they're fun to talk about on the podcast. I was like, fuck it, I'm going to see an actual, like, I'm going to be an adult and go see an adult person movie and go see Annihilation because it seemed like it would be very much my shit. And it is very much my shit. Um, it is not, I am not as effusive at it, about it as a lot of people I've seen on the internet be. I like it a lot. I think I probably like it more than you do. Um, but I do have problems with it. I think it's kind of a movie that there are things you could have done with this, like in like the editing and stuff, to make it a lot more focused. Um, and I think there's just some of the stuff they do with the characters. It, the movie just meanders a bit. And I think like when it is very focused on what it is good at, both aesthetic, aesthetically and with the sort of like broader thematic kind of like symbolic storytelling stuff it does, when it's focused on that, it's really fucking good. When it gets away from that, it gets a bit tedious to me. Yeah, and I'm curious which parts you're talking about, because I have a similar thing, but we might be talking about totally different things in the movie. I have seen this movie twice, and it wasn't necessarily because like I loved it so much I had to go see it again. But the first time I went to see it, it was I had been hearing all these great things about it, and I had a long work day where I had a class I needed to teach in the morning and a class I was teaching in the afternoon, and I had like a four-hour break in the middle, and this was pretty far away from my home, and I didn't want to go home in that four-hour break because it would... To eat up most of my time. Right. And there was an AMC theater nearby, and I don't usually go to AMCs, not because I dislike them, they're just usually far away, but I'm like, they're showing Annihilation at 2 o'clock or whatever, I'll just go watch Annihilation. And it was very nice to just go, that was a good place to hang out for a couple hours. Right, yeah. It was a little weird going and having to teach a class after seeing this movie, because my brain was a little <laughs> muddled it's, after yeah, it's it. a movie you have to process a little bit after you see it. Yes. And I have to say, AMC, you gotta step up your game, you have... Such beautiful auditoriums. You have huge screens. You actually mask your screens, which is awesome because no one else does anymore. Uh, at least the big chains don't. And did they do they mask the screens at Regal still? Um, I think so. Okay, I don't. Sometimes, I'm not as sensitive as, about okay. that as you are. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. I it, it's. I weird. feel like they did at Denver West, and I feel like they usually don't at Mills. But that okay. might just that could be yeah. totally true. By I the way. might yeah. just like I don't know. Yeah, I wasn't paying that a, much attention. West is an older theater, so it should actually have more infrastructure for that. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so so that's a whole weird thing. But anyway, they don't they mask their screens. It all looks they have these beautiful projectors, great sound, great seating, all this stuff. And they're they must have not changed the bulb in the projector I was watching that movie on mm-hmm. in like nine months. It was the dimmest movie. Like it looked like if if you know I turned my computer down to the lowest brightness setting and let's let's watch Annihilation that way. That's what it felt like. And so this movie has. One of the most important things about it is its use of color. Yeah. And you could barely make out some of those colors. Yeah. And there are significant stretches of the movie take place when it's pretty dark and like at night yes. and stuff. Including like one of the more like interesting like tense scenes is yeah. pretty dark. So that was frustrating to, to begin with. And I was like, I kind of want to see it again in a, in a better theater, but I'm not going to make myself necessarily. But I walked out of it feeling like this was very interesting. I have a lot of thoughts on it. I need to sit with it. I kind of, I found the first hour fairly tedious. Yeah. I think it gets better as it goes along. And I think the last half hour of this is 
perfect. I think it's yeah. a perfect final half hour, and I wish the rest of the movie was more like it. That is exactly how I feel about the movie. Yes. Yeah. So, but we'll get into that. I but my second viewing, I do think it seeds into that last half hour better than I was thinking. It builds into it in very interesting ways. But I saw it a second time because I didn't know my little brother even like knew about this movie and wanted to see it, but he did. And and I was like, oh well, then we should go see it together at some point because I kind of want to see it again for multiple reasons because I also just don't didn't quite know what to think about the whole thing, which is good. Sometimes it's nice to have a movie that you don't have an immediate one reaction to. Right. Uh, so we went to see it at our favorite theater, which is the Harkins Theater in Northfield. This is also a tour of Sean and Jonathan talking about movie theaters. Yes. But I can recommend the best theaters in Colorado to you. This is the best one. It's called the Harkins Northfield 18. All their theaters are great. Their staff is great. Their concessions are on the cheaper side. Just the best theater in Denver. They have the Scenic Capri, which is the best auditorium. This was not playing there because this movie is not big enough for it. <laughs> no. Again, but, this is was showing at the Denver West, not the Bills. Yes. So anyway, uh, went to see it there. looked much better. looked much brighter. And the second time it was very interesting because I found myself vacillating on the film in totally different ways than I did the first time. Mm. Enjoying things I, I hadn't quite reacted to. Like finding myself more bored with things I'd liked the first time or baffled by some decisions. Some things came into clearer focus, some didn't. This movie, while watching it, I, I get the same feeling as one of the central visuals of the movie, which is this swirling, nebulous, mysterious thing that you can't quite pin down. And I kind of think that's what the movie is, and I think some of that is on purpose, and I think some of that is through some problems with the movie. But I do think it's a fascinating film to talk about. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about it. Spoilers from here on out. Um, it's gonna the, spoiling this movie is kind of a weird thing because Natalie yeah. Portman fights an alien kind of thing at the end. Kind of, of the kind of alien yes. version of herself. Yeah. Yeah. So, like you know, as I was saying, this is more like so this the sci-fi canon that we're building in the two thousands two thousand tens, I should say. Um, I don't know if I can even list all these, but off my top of my head, you have things like Under the Skin by Jonathan Glazer, which this is a lot like Her by Spike Jones, which is Sci-fi of a very more, you know, human, down-to-earth variety. Gravity by Alfonso Cuaron. Yeah. The Martian by um, Ridley Scott. You know, those are the kind of the big budget ones. You've got Blade Runner 2049. You've got The uh, Arrival, both by Johan Johan Johansson's a composer, late composer now, sadly. I meant uh, Dennis Villeneuve. You have... um, God, we've talked about... I know we've talked about a bunch of these on this podcast. You have Alex Garland's other movie, Ex Machina. Oh, right, Which is great. Have you ever seen that? No. You should. It's even better than... You would like it, I think. Uh, any others that I'm forget- I mean, there's uh, Interstellar by Christopher Nolan. Interstellar, yeah. I mean, and then there's some that are like slightly less, like art scene stuff, but stuff like Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow, sure. Yeah, more pulpy pop yeah. sci-fi. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I've made a list of these before, but there have been many, many of these over the last few years. Just smart adult, and sometimes even smart poppy, you know, pulpy yeah. science fiction. And it's been a really interesting genre to explore over this decade because I think you get at least one or two of these a year that feel like significant. Like, I do think there is going to be, in a future like film class, people are going to do sci-fi of the 2010s. Yeah. And that will be a significant genre. And I think Annihilation will be an entry in that. I don't think it's going to be, you know, I think clearly um, its rollout was sort of botched and people aren't generally paying attention to it. I also don't think there's any version of this movie that would get any mainstream traction. I do think it will get a certain level of academic traction as part of this movement. Um, But as I said, it also stands apart from those in having this sort of Soviet sci-fi bent to it where it very much takes more from 
a Tarkovsky side of things than a Kubrick side of things. Like, yeah. I think the default a lot of people compare sci-fi to is like, if it's sci-fi and it's slightly odd, they compare it to 2001. I don't really think Annihilation is anything like 2001. I think you can make like vague comparisons, but yeah, like I would, yeah. that's not where I would immediately go. No, because it's just, it's such a different beast. It really does feel more like a Tarkovsky thing where it has this philosophical humanist streak. The way it views nature as this ambivalent force is very Tarkovsky-esque, very much like Solaris or Stalker. The basic plot setup of there's this mysterious zone that a team has to go in and find a room in the middle of it. That is the plot to Stalker. Yeah. Um, but, and I'm not saying it's stealing from that. It's, I mean, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. You know, Andre Tarkovsky, you know, it's pretty good. Um, and even some of Tarkovsky's other films, it has some... Some of the way it weaves in flashbacks and stuff is somewhat similar to his film Mirror, which is very experimental and weird. Um, but, like, yeah, it borrows more from sort of that tradition. It definitely has some more American sci-fi undercurrents to it. Like, the body horror is super Carpenter-esque, I yeah. think. Um, and then there's some stuff that I think is Garland's own stuff. And I think a lot of the, the relationship stuff and how he frames that, some of the musical choices, it's an interesting blend. But that means that this is a sci-fi movie that is not particularly propulsive. It is very slow. It is very much about building a tone and a tension, an internal tension within. And when it does that and nails those things, I love it. Yeah. I do think there are certain things I can point to that I think break some of those internal tones and tensions to me. Um, does that kind of match with what you're thinking about the movie? Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah. So, like, I'll just say up front, like, I, first time, did not know kind of what to make of the whole Oscar Isaac, Natalie Portman relationship and the flashbacks. Hmm. And on a second viewing, I really liked all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, I think that's, like, a really crit- I think it could have been executed slightly better, but, like, in terms of the narrative, I think it's really... It's really smart the way that it sort of, I think, changes your understanding of the motivations of the Natalie Portman character. Yes, and this movie is a closed loop because yeah. it starts where it ends and seeing it a second time really helped me with especially the Oscar Isaac, Natalie Portman stuff. I just like that stuff way better. I think the way those flashbacks are weaved in is beautiful. I like that they are so out of chronology. I like yeah. that it never comes out and says... This is what happened, and this is her motivation. It's just these little fractals of her memory that you go into, and you piece together some of those things as you head towards the end. And I think the central theme of this movie, about this couple that disintegrates and rebuilds, uh, and having that as the stand-in for this larger sci-fi process that's going on of disintegration and rebuilding, is the strongest thing about the movie. And I think there's a lot of kind of... It's not a long movie. It's only two hours. But I think there's a lot of fat around that basic theme that keeps pushing you away from it. Yeah. And I hate to say it because I love all the actors in this movie. There's one... There's two characters who matter. And it's Natalie Portman and it's Oscar Isaac. Yeah. And every other character in this movie is out of a different movie. And each of those characters is out of a separate different movie. And some of them are good. Like, Jennifer Jason Leigh is the, like, lead scientist. Right. The psychiatrist. Yeah, the psychiatrist. Yeah. Great performance. Aggressively weird performance. Yes. She yeah. is so, like, weirdly detached and everything. I think she comes the closest to feeling like she's in this movie. But then, like, Tessa Thompson doesn't get to be a character. She's just... We, we are told through bad exposition that she cuts herself. Yeah. No. You have... No. Is that... That's Tessa oh, Thompson. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, you have a Russian lady who is there to give exposition and then die... And right, you have uh, Gina Rodriguez, who is out of a Michael Bay movie. And okay, like, right. And she's the one that's supposed to be an alcoholic. Yes. But that is, again, that is, like, told to you. That is told to you. She's just, like, her. the whole tone of that performance and how it's written and, like, the placement in the movie just... 
Because this kind of movie relies on a very specific, like, pace and tone. And just, like, that performance style is not the style of, like, what Natalie Portman is doing. And Natalie Portman is not doing the same kind of style as Jennifer Jason Lee. And you can mix different performance styles in a movie. This kind of movie, like, go watch a Tarkovsky film or something that he's drawing from. Part of why those very unique atmospheres work is because everyone is on the exact same page of what kind of performance they're giving. This one, to me, the biggest issue is it's all over the map, and those other characters so fundamentally do not matter to the movie. Yeah, that's and that is basically my core issue with it as well. That It's something that I see and understand what they're trying to do of they're building this cast of characters that are this is, I mean, this is just something the movie tells you that are self-destructive in different ways that are suicidal or they, they, they engage in these behaviors that destroy themselves and that are bad for them, but they can't avoid doing. And it's like, I think that's a good, like, like it matches with the themes of the movie. It, like, like that's not a bad idea. The execution's really weird because so much of that is just told to you in a couple of scenes of exposition and very little of it feels like it's actually like organically developed over the course of the movie. And there's like some bits of it, like when the the Tessa Thompson character disappears into the forest of like like flower people and and becomes like a plant person herself. Like that's a great little narrative moment, but it's not built up to satisfaction. It's, it's a great payoff to a non-existent character arc. Exactly. Like it feels like there was, and I have no idea if any stuff was cut. Like some major stuff was cut from the movie, but it feels like there was stuff cut from the movie. Not in the sense of like you know, there's that big time gap when right when they entered. That's not what I mean when like stuff was cut. That was like supposed to be disorienting. And there's just like stuff in the middle of the journey that feels like we were supposed to, as an audience, be exposed to certain like character arcs and like narrative concepts that we are like kind of briefly told about, and it never develops that. And then then the, like those characters resolve like very quickly and suddenly in the plot to then lead us like onto the next plot point with the main character Natalie Portman. And it's something of it, it ends up feeling like. Those characters should have either, like, I don't know if you could completely cut them. Obviously, like, you couldn't just cut them from, like, the, the shooting of the movie, but from, like, the screenplay. I think it would be hard to have Natalie Portman be the only character in the movie with, like, given the plot structure. But, like... But, like, they go in with, what is it, five people? Natalie Portman, yeah. Tessa Thompson, Gina Rose, I guess four, okay. Yeah. Um, two, maybe? Three? I Like, I, like... It's too because here's the thing. Even if you did like I don't know three hour cut of this movie where you really get into all the characters and you see it, you don't just say yeah. it because almost all the exposition you laid out is in one scene when Russian lady and Natalie Portman are on a boat going down the river. And this is a really good movie in a lot of ways. That is a terrible scene, yeah, because it exists solely to give you exposition on all the other characters and all they're doing is rowing in a boat. And that actually could be a very interesting visual aesthetic moment. And it just has to be on them talking. It's a yeah. really awkward scene. And it, it, it is just like the way they talk feels so inhuman. And I think I understand what they're going for of like, these people are already assuming they're going to die. And that's why they're so, she's like so upfront with her own personal traumas, but I don't think they do quite enough to sell me on that of her just being like, yes, and my daughter died. and But two people died that day. My daughter and myself. It's like, it's a, it's a, what? It's what? Awful, awful. Like, <laughs> what? 
This movie, I said this on Twitter, it would be so much better if it had two-thirds less dialogue. This yeah. movie should be primarily silent. But anyway, Because when it is primarily silent, it's fucking like Cracker Jack. It's yes. so good. It's amazing, yes. And it's weird because Ex Machina, his previous film, is the opposite. Not the opposite in that like, when it's silent, it's bad. I just mean that it's a primarily dialogue-driven drama, and it's really well done. And Alex Garland is a writer. Like He's written a bunch of Danny Boyle movies, like Sunshine, 28 Days Later. Uh, he wrote Dread, yeah. the, uh, the the good Judge Dread movie, which actually just yesterday Carl Urban came out and said, uh, Alex Garland actually directed that movie. He, the, the actual yeah. director didn't do anything on it. So kind of funny. Maybe Garland had more to do with it. But he's a talented writer. I just think, and this is a well-written movie, accepting that writing is more than just dialogue. Yeah. The dialogue is clunky. But what I was going to say is that even if you had all the more stuff with the other characters and really fleshed them out... I still think that would be a distraction because they don't have anything to do with the Natalie Portman character. Like, she doesn't know them. She doesn't get particularly distraught about what happens to them over the course of this journey because she has bigger things to worry about. And, you know, the the arc of the film, what this film is about, is a woman who loses her husband before she even loses him physically. Yeah. Who, he comes back transformed. She goes through a process of transformation and they reunite transformed. It's why the ending is so perfect. It's a very precise way to end the movie. Yeah. And all that other stuff is kind of fluff around it. What you need are characters who can act as mirrors on the Natalie Portman character and further that. Like this needs to be more of a singular focused minded movie. It's not an ensemble film. Yeah. And it, it makes the mistake in certain parts of deciding it's going to be an ensemble film. And so you get things like where you have these whiplashy effects like the scene where Gina Rodriguez knocks out Natalie Portman and ties them all up and is shouting at them about lying. That feels like it's out of a different movie. Yeah, that, that but, feels like that's like a zombie like 28 Days Later kind of scene. Yes. That's like a very cliche zombie movie scene. But then it leads to yes. one of the best scenes in the movie. Which is dialogue free other than this weird creature that you would normally see in like an anime or something yeah. that has subsumed the Russian lady. It's that, that mutated bear. It has her voice and this scene of like horrific tension and violence. And so, yeah, you get this whiplash effect where it's like, I just am kind of bored out of my mind for two or three minutes. And then it's like, oh, this is really interesting. So the movie does overall kind of feel like a compromised version of itself to me. And, you know, when you have the conversation about what did Paramount do wrong with this, I don't know. I don't, in this form, I don't know what I would do with Annihilation because I also think there were probably studio pressures throughout that led to having the ensemble focus that we have. Mm-hmm. But the movie that was made is kind of split in some ways. And I think even best case scenario, this wasn't going to be an Arrival or a Her or a Gravity where it's like a, well, no, it's certainly not Gravity, which is a huge hit. Yeah. But like an Arrival or a Her, which is like a good, modest sci-fi hit that got some mainstream traction. I just, it's, it's, it's an art house thing, you know? And sadly, a, a studio movie made at this, even this relatively modest budget can't just go out for an art house release. Yeah. So it's a it's a weird scenario. But yeah, I, I do think that is getting back to that focus with the, the characters, it just it, it does constantly feel like when you get into stuff with the other characters, it's a weird distraction. Yeah. That the movie's like in this weird like it's waffling in this weird middle place between being like this bigger ensemble story that develops all the characters and is kind of about all of them and it's using them to 
explore different lenses of these sort of self-destructive, suicidal, like depressive transformation that they like traumatic transformations that they go through. And so it's like it kind of wants to be that in certain moments, but can't commit the time to do it because it is also this like very focused story about this like main character and her relationship with the, her husband and her transformative experience. It is like so focused on that that it can't dedicate the time to either one of them. And so it's like it, when it when it does focus on that one main character, that is when it's at its best yes. for sure. So I think yeah, that that's like the more ideal version of the movie that we get is one that understands that like the rest of the characters need to be more sort of like narratively disposable in some ways and and like you said are reflections of and are like secondary commentaries on the main character instead of trying to make them more fleshed out full characters themselves and it's you know even again comparing this to ex machina that is complete i think there's only three actors in that whole movie like that's a three-hander it's it's oscar isaac it's alicia vikander and it's donald gleason and i feel like this could have had a similar like tight focus somewhere in it of you want Oscar Isaac, you want Natalie Portman, even though he's not there in the in the present scenes. Yeah. And you probably need someone to go in there with her so that it's not just her. Yeah. Like the Jennifer Jason Lee character. Like I think she's the one that works the best for me. Yeah. Which because, also makes she's also the one that is around for the longest. Yes. And and I I I think you see more of her I think they, they show more than they tell you with her character. Basically because Jennifer Jason Lee is that good of an actress and can kind of do it. Yeah. But she also gets to be around the longest. She has this just weird affectation to everything she does. She has... She also has, like, several scenes with the Natalie Portman character, like, that build up their relationship yeah. even before they go into the, the zone. And then once they are in the zone, those two characters also have the most interaction. Technically the Shiver. The zone is, is the Superman Stalker. Yes. It's, the, okay. it's, it's just, you know, it's because it's yeah. like the, the Stalker movie and the Stalker video games. Yes. It's like, I'm more used to the zone. It's okay, but yes, um, when they go into the shimmer or the zone. But yeah, I, I also think like Jennifer Jason Leigh gets a payoff too in that yeah. she is the thing that explodes into a glorious ball of light at the end of the movie. Isn't she? Is like, she also the one who like gives the title drop, or is that Natalie Portman? I think that's Jennifer Jason. Yeah, Lee. I think she gets the one that gets to say Annihilation, which I was not expecting this movie to have a fucking huge title drop. It's like climactic moments. It would be like if in one of the scenes in Blade Runner 2049, someone was like to Ryan Gosling, like, what are you? And he's like, I'm a Blade Runner, and it's 2049, bitch. Yeah. That just, it's, it's, it's really awkward, and it doesn't work. But it's, yeah. it's kind of, because Jennifer Jason Lee does it, and her performance is so aggressively odd, it kind of... I, it, it, I it liked so, it. Yeah, I, yeah. It's like, it, I liked it enough that I was like, they should have titled the movie something differently if they had this line in it. Because, like, yeah. it's a good line in that moment. It feels cheapened by the fact that it is also the title of the movie. Yes. Um, so yeah, and again, like like they tell you the thing about how her character has cancer, but I like that like that that is a piece of exposition that I feel like they could have done more elegantly somewhere. But you get the sense that something is wrong with this woman. Yeah, that you well get to, outside you of that. get to know her before yeah. they tell you that she has cancer, so sure. that when they say that, you're like. Oh, that makes so much sense about why she reacts in this way. And she's actually situation. an interesting counterpoint to Portman. Yeah. Because from, I mean, maybe she has demons in her closet. We don't know. But from what we are seeing, this is not some self-inflicted wound she's carrying around. This is, not that depression and those things are self-inflicted wounds. I just mean that it's, it's not from an outside factor. She got a disease in her body yeah. and is falling apart from that. And so she just has a fundamentally slightly different worldview on all this. And that is an interesting contrast. Whereas... I mean, we know nothing. Okay, Gina Rodriguez is an alcoholic, I guess. We hear that once. It has nothing yeah. to do with anything else. Tessa Thompson 
has cut herself, but we only even we don't even see the evidence of that until near the end. And yeah. Russian lady is there for exposition. A good performance. I actually like that character, but yeah. but like none of them. You can't say how they contrast or compare because they're they're total blanks. Yeah, because it's also stuff like specifically like you feel like the alcoholic character. There's like moments where they could have done something with it with like the the. You know, the core narrative conceit of the Shimmer slash the Zone being this thing that that rapidly evolves and transforms you from, like, the DNA, you know, and you, like, genetically yeah. are transforming the longer you stay in there. And it feels like that would be something that they do this with the lady that cuts herself, that, that these, you know, the, the trees and flowers and stuff start planting, like, and growing from her scars. So at least they do something with that conceit that fits in some way or references in some way what is supposed to be your self-destructive behavior. And with, but with the alcoholic lady, there's like, like she stares at her hands a little bit. It's like, my hands are kind of funky. And that's like, that has nothing to do with it. Yeah. Is that like, like, like the clothes? Cause I was like desperately trying to figure out what, like in some of those scenes when she's doing the zombie movie thing where she goes crazy. Like, what is that? Is that like, because people who are alcoholics get the shakes? Like what, like what is that? Like what, what is the thing that refers to that behavior? And Russian lady having a dead daughter has like, it's never even close to referenced again. Yeah. You know, I mean, she because she's also the one that just gets murdered like sure. halfway through the movie. So, but yeah, but they also like she's the one they all clearly really like her because she's nice and motherly and everything. But yeah, it's it's a weird arc, and I don't want to you know dwell on it too much. But it is, I think, every time you get back to one of those characters, like I even remember like both times I watched it, I was pretty into the beginning of the movie until you get to that first scene with all of them at the table together and she meets that them. That feels all. like it's like a scene from Aliens. Like, yes, it does. Yeah, like like it's like you know all the Marines like doing like the fucking like five fingers like fillet thing and yep. it's like hey, get over here, Ripley. I mean specifically Gina Rodriguez. I said a Michael Bay movie. I should have said Aliens, a James Cameron movie because she is the like Latino character from or Latino character yeah, from Aliens. Yeah, She's, the Marine from she Aliens. Just feels like that person, you know. Uh-huh. Like and that's Aliens is a very different piece of sci-fi, you know. Um yeah, so that's a little weird. Yeah, there's even that also, the line, the scene where she meets them all has one of the worst lines, which is um, Gina Rodriguez comes over and is like, like she hits on Natalie Portman and then they're like, like, oh, what's like, why were you doing that? And she's like, oh, well, we don't know if we're going to live. And it's like, it's clearly Alex Garland trying to say, oh, I, I hit two birds with one stone there. I revealed that she's gay and that they're going on a suicide mission. And it's like, that was not elegant. I don't think yeah. that's how people act. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, um, kind of weird. Let's talk about what's good, though. Because as I said, like, up to that point, because that's just such a break in the tone, but I do love this kind of, there is this slow, dreadful, kind of mournful atmosphere to this whole thing. And it's there right from the start, where, you know, you have those initial scenes of the Shimmer, which are kind of interesting. Yeah, like the the asteroid impacting near where the lighthouse is. And it's done completely with the, uh, like, the guitar music, which is, I love when they do that as kind of a juxtaposition, a tonal juxtaposition. I really like... Um, the scene where Natalie Portman is painting the bedroom and Oscar Isaac comes back and I, I forget the song they're playing, but it's like a folk kind of thing. And it's yeah. just, that's just a beautiful, interesting scene. And again, it, no dialogue. It's so good when there's no dialogue. Yeah. Because you just feel that aesthetic experience of this woman in mourning, in between things, the weirdness of this man transformed coming home. All of that sort of thing works. And I actually think the best dialogue in the movie is between Natalie Portman and Oscar Isaac. Because I think Alex Garland and then the two actors find this kind of easy 
comfort and rapport between the two that still feels stilted in the right ways because yeah. the writing of this kind of movie does need to be stilted to create this kind of tone yeah but there's just a certain kind of stilted and when it's they, they have this very like kind of dry mechanical way of talking to each other that sort of thing like they also have this conversation later in the movie where they're in bed together and they talk about god and creation and that aging is actually a genetic like mistake and that's actually that is that is like thematic expositional dialogue i actually think it works with those two yeah it, it feels like two people talking about this thing that we've yes. like and it feels because also specifically the way it's presented in this flashback structure feels like it's not exposition because the character is telling you the viewer this stuff it's the like God perspective that we are given cuts to that moment because that moment is important for us to know. Yes. It's like those are two really different things. Yes, it's a small... You're absolutely right. It's not that the writing is all that different. It's a functional difference of how you present it, right? Yeah. And that's what's so important about the whole flashback structure and that it's nonlinear. It means that whenever you cut to something, there's a motivated piece of character psychology that sends us there. And that's what's so good about those scenes between them. Also... Oscar Isaac is Oscar Isaac. Yeah. And, he's, you know, let's not discount a very charismatic dude. He, yes. You, you buy into him immediately, whether he's, like, very nice and charming or he's weird and creepy. I mean, I don't, you know, this is a movie, like, driven by female performances and a lot of great, great actresses. And I'm loath to kind of say this because of that. I do think Oscar Isaac gives the best performance in the movie. Just in like, sure. he has this weird, crazy background role, and and how much he hangs over things, both in the like nice, cool husband she had, and then later on all the stuff he does in the two videotaped scenes. God, yes, yeah. It's yeah. the one where he cuts the guy open, and the one at the end where he kills himself after giving the little monologue with a southern accent he didn't have before. It's it's a great supporting... And it's a, the definition of a supporting performance. Because by yeah. no means is it the centerpiece of the movie. It's just such a good performance in all of those yeah. ways. But like it is something that it is important because so much of like like that supporting performance is like central to a lot of the behaviors of your main character. Uh-huh. So like him... You you being able to buy the relationship between him and Natalie Portman so easily in the handful of flashback scenes you get... Like when he, they're they're like a no, relatively normal couple, that's really important. And then also him being able to sell how much that relationship is like utterly transformed after his experience in the Shimmer. Like, yeah, it's it's a great performance. Yeah, and Natalie Portman too. I don't want to. Yeah. She's very good in this. I I don't think it's her best work, and I don't know if it's the it's the kind of role that entirely suits her as well as some others. Like I, you know, I still think her high watermark is like Black Swan. Right. Yeah. Um. Where just she has a way of doing kind of like, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but like she has like a very like guarded level of like weirdness and histrionics so she can get into things. Like she's kind of a stealth crazy person in some of her best performances. Yeah, I can see that. And, um, you know, this is much more of a sober kind of quiet, you know, in some cases very kind of avant-garde thing where she is the focus of the camera, but things are more happening to her than she is driving action in that sort of sense. Um, <clears throat> like, I don't think this is as revelatory a performance in that way as, like, Scarlett Johansson going and doing Under the Skin, and I'm like, I never saw you in that way in many ways, because <laughs> you become a weird, crazy alien thing with black skin and burn alive at the end of that. Sorry, spoiler. It's, okay. it's okay. I already know that. Yeah, so it's like, this This is crazy. I didn't I didn't think of you that way, ScarJo. I'm scared of you now. You know, I don't come out of this thinking that, but I do think it's a very effective performance from her overall. Yeah. yeah. It's a step up of, from Jane and Thor. 
<laughs> from Jade. Yes. It's like it, I think I think you read that like this movie doesn't use Natalie Portman in the best way possible, but it is like she it's gives a, a strong performance. Yeah, but I but it is a better use of Natalie. Actually, Jane and Thor is a good example of because I think this is in the right direction for Natalie Portman. Yes, yeah. I just don't know a hundred percent because Jane and Thor is like using her as just a normal like the girlfriend in the movie actress. Yeah. That, that's like I think Star Wars also taught us that's not really what Natalie Portman is like yeah. I think you have to have some kind of weirder meat on the I shouldn't even say weirder but but deeper meat on the bones whether that is the batshit insanity of Black Swan where she thrived because she looks so normal on the surface yeah. and so kind of put together and she shows the cracks in this person showing or if it's something where she just has to display a very like you know, fierce, obvious intelligence, which I think is the best reason for her to be in this movie because I 100% buy Natalie Portman as, like, a brilliant biologist. Yeah. Because this is a woman who, like, speaks four languages and has a Harvard degree and all this. Like, yeah, yeah. quit acting for several years to go get her, you know, master's at Harvard. Not many actors do that after being in Star Wars, right? <laughs> right, yeah. You know, like, and that shines through in her work. She's, that's probably the best thing about her work in Thor is I believe Jane is very smart. I don't necessarily 100% believe Jane is this into Thor, but that's a different thing, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, no, she's very good. We talked about Jennifer Jason Lee. Uh, getting back to the side characters for just a second, I love Tessa Thompson. She's a great actress. She was, yes. she was amazing in Thor as Valkyrie, in Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. She's in Creed. She's really great in that. And I'm sure she's in other things I'm forgetting about. I will say that it's a testament to how much this movie wastes her. I didn't realize it was Tessa Thompson until the credits rolled. Me neither. And I was like... She's not an unrecognizable actress. I don't think of her as particularly, like, chameleonic into things. Like, she's got a presence. And it was like, I just, I didn't know who you were. I thought it was someone, like, an unknown, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it's weird. It's it's kind of, it's just a bizarre use of that actress, I think. I don't know. But yes. Um, where else should we go with this? I mean, let's talk about the stuff in The Shimmer. Okay, yeah. And how that's put together. Um, because it definitely comes to a head in the last 30 minutes. But you do have these nice you know, spikes in it throughout where... Yeah. You know, describing what we think the movie does best. I think it's the... One, I think this movie is directed fantastically for yes. the most part. I think the cinematography is great and it is smart. And they are consistently making the most intelligent and interesting shot compositions within the weird, the, the quiet weirdness of this world. Because until the last like half hour, it's only very sporadically do crazy visual things happen. Yeah. But like just the shimmers of color... And the uneasiness of this forest that doesn't look quite right. And that most of the weird things are not CGI. They're like flowers plastered on the walls and stuff. And that slow building tension, especially when it's quiet and the music is ambient. There's something really special about all that. Yeah, it is like when it is like in this interesting sort of like... Like I wouldn't quite call this a horror movie, but it's it is one of those horror esque. Like, yeah. yeah, it's horror esque, and it like plays with the I think some of like the the directorial like conventions that go to horror in specific scenes. Particularly the bear scene is like the most obviously like this is a horror movie sequence. Uh, but yeah, I think it does like so much of quietly being able to build tension just with that like how things are slightly off in different ways that, that like. Is like very subtle early on, and it's mostly about like you know having like the shimmer in the sky whenever you get a brief glimpse through the trees of like the bubble that they're in, and then it's like a little bit of obviously the more obvious things like the giant fucking albino alligator and shit like that. But like you know just having like this weird array of different flowers like all over the place that don't like look like like it looks like you're in a botanical garden or something because these flowers do not go to like go together, and that's something that. 
you kind of get a little bit of dialogue from from Natalie Portman sort of telling you that, but it's something you can see immediately that like it just has an immediate visual impact of this is this is unlike like if I go in the walk in the woods, I would not see this in like a very like basic level. Like nature doesn't quite look like that. Yeah, and I, I all those in between moments like building up to the crazy shit or in between the crazy shit. Those are some of the most effective things, and I actually wish there was a little more of it, of just quiet, moving through this world, observing them. Kind of like in Twin Peaks, The Return. You remember this, the scene in one of those... It's the episode where they go, the, the sheriff and everyone go to v- investigate the like hole in the ground where they think they're going to get the, um, right, the yeah. portal, and it's that really long walk through the forest to get there. More of that. Yes. More of just that quiet, dread building kind of thing, I think would be good. You know, some of the exposition here about how the science of it works, I do like because I like it. They consistently tie it back into some element of biology and cellular division and real science that makes it feel weighty. And I do like those moments a lot. Um, I should say while we're on the topic of cinematography, just in case I forget it, the best composition in this entire movie, it's an amazing shot, isn't anywhere in the shimmer. It's at the end when Natalie Portman, we get back to Benedict Wong, is interrogating her. Right, yeah. I should say, I love Benedict. I don't know if this is a waste of Benedict Wong because I don't know where else he would be in the movie. Yeah. But I'm sad that we have Benedict Wong and he's only in that one room because he's so good. He's he's very good though in that one room as this he's weird really good. science interrogating guy that you yes. kind of like don't quite know what he's doing, like what he's working for, what he's trying to get at. From like I just I just want more Benedict Wong in things. I think is the basic takeaway. That's fair enough. But yes, but anyway, she's being they they finish the interrogation. She takes a drink of water, which is significant because yeah. it's when Oscar Isaac early on takes a drink of water that he starts to bleed out of every orifice. And she takes the drink and puts it down. And in this big widescreen composition, we have the, the, the glass mid-center frame. And there's this like thing of water on the side of it from where she drank. And it starts to split. And it splits yeah. across into two strands of water. And it cuts right after it comes to the middle and the last split happens. Like a sort of, it's it's an obvious visual metaphor of some kind of cellular division thing. Yeah. But it is done just completely silently. She puts the glass down, this weird kind of blurry frame of that in, again, the, the widescreen of it is one of the most amazing things about it. And it just like, I almost wanted the movie to cut there because it's such a perfect, like, visual-like punctuation mark for the movie. Right, yeah. And, but there's a lot of really smart shots like that. Definitely. Where visual symbolism is something this movie does fantastically well throughout. Yeah, in both in like subtle ways like that and then like less subtle ways of, you know, because once you start getting deeper into the shimmer, you have like that very Last of Us-y kind of stuff of just like the dude fucking like encrusted into the side of the swimming pool with like his chest blown out and just like crawling up the sides of the wall in like fungus, just like... Fucking yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Yes. That whole scene, when they get to the mess hall and they find the video, one, that video is just an amazing sequence where it's Oscar Isaac with this weird smile on his face being like, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. And cutting in like, I, I that's gnarly. Like, I don't yes. usually get that grossed out by this. I was like in my seat going, oh, like leaning back, like hand over my mouth, like, because... It's like, he's like pulling on the skin like it's a flap on something. Like, it is, like he cuts under, he just cuts the guy's whole like belly off. Because it's definitely, it's the kind of thing that, you know, like there are scenes like this, it's like a very, reminds you of like John Carpenter's The Thing or something like that. It's like, you've seen scenes like this in a horror movie, but there's something about, like you, I felt like I was expecting it to be more like 
a scene in a war movie of like, you know, it's like, oh, we got to get this thing out of you. And it's like, you know, the guy, like the Oscar Isaac character would be like very like, like, you know, has to do this, but I like cares about this guy so much. And instead it's just like, check out this fucking shit, dude. This is whack. Like, I'm going to cut this fucking dude open and pull his skin. I was like, there's a fucking stick in here. Holy shit. That's fucking awesome. Right. Look at this. But that's also part of it is that it's like it's the mundanity of it that the guy just lets him cut him open like yeah. that. And then it's what's inside. It doesn't drop the ball on the payoff. He's got a slithering snake as his insides now. Yeah, it's fucking good. That's, it is. That seat's nuts. And like, I also love, this is part of why I love the Oscar Isaac character so much is how fundamentally inscrutable he is uh-huh. from beginning to end. In that like, you never really know what happened to him in the Shimmer and, and where he's coming from. And that is also one of my favorite things about this movie is how much it leaves to the imagination. And one of that is here is where he's like, something happened where he has some like really profound interest in all of this. Because when he like he puts his hand in there just holding the snake thing and just turns and like smiles to the camera, yeah. it's like, okay, whatever happened to him was a, at least a slightly different experience than what uh, Natalie Portman and friends are going through. Yes, yeah, they're having a bit more of an extreme time. As you can say that, it is it is nutso. And then you they go to the pool. I mean, that's one of the great things is that you set up the geography of this whole space in the video, and then our main characters go explore that space. That's just great setup and payoff. And when they get to that pool, and he's blown up like I that's I I was I knew it reminded me of something. I'm glad you said The Last of Us because that must be what it was reminding me of. Yeah. Um, I would also say it reminds me of. um, some of the kind of like body mosaics in Hannibal, the Brian Fuller show. Yes, yeah. Where they will like make these tableaus out of dead bodies. But like, yeah, he's, it's, and it's all growing recognizably out of his like skeletal structure, but it's so warped and deformed and it's this fungal thing blown across the whole wall. And it's just, again, it's presented as so mundane as just, a, it's not CGI they put in there. It's yeah. just part of that set. And that's part of what sells it so much. Yeah. It's such an insane thing to go see. It's those moments where you really just see something surreal or terrifyingly sublime that make this movie work when it works. Yeah, and it's it's the sort of the core, I think, like science fiction conceit and like aesthetic like sort of like trick or whatever that the movie is playing with is that like weird, like sort of uncanny version of life and, and the way that like life is presented as as this like the most extreme version of itself that then that's kind of what it feels like the shimmer does is it takes all everything that's inside of it and it pushes it to its utmost extremes with like the diversity of like the biodiversity that is present and and the way that that biodiversity can be mingled into individual organisms so that like humans become become plant become fungus become animal and become like like all these other things simultaneously and playing with that idea like narratively and then also just like purely visually and the inventiveness with which they do it is so interesting to me it's, it's like it was my favorite part like the most compelling part of most of the movie was just seeing what are you going to do with this concept next you know oh absolutely because it's a great concept and it really is it's part of why there is this tension in the movie between what is unsaid and what is said so thuddingly in the dialogue because when the movie is at its best it doesn't have to tell you any of this stuff. It just shows you these things, and your mind kind of goes racing through that. Like, you know, when you think about that guy who is splattered against the wall that way, and who let himself be cut open by Oscar Isaac, you know, we would think from our point of view, like, oh, that's got to be terrifying. He's being killed. But maybe he's not. Like, that's yeah. in this space 
life has such a different meaning and that because it is something we cannot fathom or understand and it is left so open, that is what makes it scary and effective to the viewer. And so that's why it just feels like the movie in some moments is just so weirdly of two minds and it does this one thing so well in understanding how you build this existential horror in this kind of sci-fi setting and it it also undermines that with some of the writing. Yeah, and like like one scene like that, I think this is... This is maybe a little bit past where the bee, the bear scene is. It's either right before it, it's right after it, uh, where the Tessa Thompson character has that. I really do not like this bit of, of dialogue she has where she's like, it explains that it's like, oh, like, it's what you don't say. It's like, it's the, the shimmer is, it reflects, it refracts everything. It's not just light. It refracts DNA and it's like, what the fuck is that? Like, that doesn't mean anything. And And I feel like that was the one area where the, like, you don't need to, like... I don't understand what that line of dialogue accomplishes. Right. Like, all, it feels like it's supposed to be... We are explaining how this thing works. Refracting DNA, like, literally, grammatically speaking, means nothing. Like, right. it, so it's like, it is does not explain anything. It doesn't serve some sort of, like, character-building point, really. It's and I just, and visually, I love that scene. Because the whole idea of these flower people... Yes. You don't need to say anything about yeah, it. Like it that, yeah, like that exactly. itself. The, the visual so says what it needs to say about what this space does. That like like I guess like maybe you want some slight clarification in dialogue if you really feel it's necessary. This like these are not literally people. That these are flowers that became like that grew in the shape of people. And it's like, and I think some of that dialogue of of them being like, oh, it's like takes the whatever like bit of DNA that that tells like how the human the cells how to construct the human form. Like I think that bit of dialogue is fine. It's specifically when it like has to go all the way to being like, no, like you see our radios can't don't work, and we always thought it was just like refracting things on the outside, but no, it's refracting everything on the inside, and it's refracting the DNA too. It's like that doesn't mean anything, and it's just like. This line of dialogue like does nothing other than it feels like it's trying to expunge some sort of mystery. It's very clunky in trying to do that, and it shouldn't even be trying to do that in the first place. I just I do wonder if you could get like Alex Garland in five to ten years, you know, like under truth serum or something, and ask like, did you want that dialogue in the movie? And he, I just I have a suspicion that he might tell you there was a draft of this script that was significantly less heavy on dialogue, and there were probably a note process that was like. What does any of this mean? Because until you realize it visually, it has to be incomprehensible to anyone who's not in the mindset of it. And so I understand why it would get to the way it is. Um, because this is, you know, I think this movie's like heart of hearts, what it is, is pretty out there, even for the current wave of sci-fi. Like oh, yeah. much further on a limb. Like the closest thing is Under the Skin, which is a, technically I think was made in, it's made in Scotland. I think that director is American, but it was made with a lot of British funds. Like, it was this huge international co-production that's still, you know, tiny micro-budget, right? Yeah. So that's how you get that kind of thing to put together. You can't make Annihilation with a micro-budget. So you have to go through a studio system, but they don't make this, even in, like, Arrival is kind of a little out there. It's nothing out of the mainstream like this, you know? So it's it's a weird push and pull, but... And so I understand why it, it, some of it is that way, but it's also, like, it does mar a scene like that with the flower people where it's like... Yeah. If you all just shut up, this is such a beautiful scene. Yeah. And it's shot so well. And it's it just... Because it also, like, it doesn't... Except for maybe the bear scene where it comes in slowly. It never reveals its most terrifying or existential images, like, as a smash cut or anything. It just... You turn the corner and there it is. Yeah. And there's a very human sight element to that. But, yeah. So, you have the whole thing with the flower people. 
The bear scene is great. Yes. The you also have the Russian scientist getting dragged away in the night. Like, I think that's a pretty good tense scene where yes. it rips through the... Because you don't see it and it rips through the fence and all that stuff. I also like another one of the <clears throat> like visuals that like luckily there's no dialogue where someone very ham-fistedly has to say something about it is when the Natalie Portman character is looking for the Russian scientist and discovers the deer with like the flowers growing out of the antlers. And it's like... That is a great fucking shot. Like, it's a great image. It's like, I want, like, a painting that is basically that. You know, like, it's... Her whole journey where she goes to find the Russian scientist and comes back. It's a pretty long little sequence um, for what it is. Because it's just her going, seeing the body, and coming back. But because it's completely wordless, it's so much about her moving through that space. It's one of the best scenes. Yeah. It's great, yeah. Um, Yeah, so then I just wanted, like, to note those before we get to the bear scene. Which is one of, like, I feel like... The bear scene and then, like, all the shit at the very end are, like, the two big, like, movie-stealing moments. Yes. The bear scene is a little marred for me by some of what's around it. But it is, yes. Once you get the bear comes in, it is nutso. And it is good nut. And it feels like it has earned that level Uh of nutso by the time you get to it. Um, And just, like, the sound design in that scene of how they've built the... Because it is recognizably the voice of Russian lady. But through this just gnarly janky filter of this like dying you know pained animal this yeah it's like weird skeletal bear thing that like half of its skull is exposed yeah it's 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 it is one of the most tense scenes i think i've ever seen in a movie it is very very well done yeah yeah it's just fucking. It's just like when it like turns around it's like snipping up on the tessa thompson characters it's like fuck it it is something where it's like it's not, like, this incredibly unique original, like, construction for a, like, tense horror movie kind of scene. It's just executed to a degree, I think, has, like, very rarely, if ever, been done before in, the, also, in a they, scene like that. They push the design of the bear far enough that it is truly into the what-the-hell-am-I-looking-at yeah. zone. And I think it, the special effects are very good there. It has a real presence in the space. The sound design sells the presence a lot, too, because it's like the sound design's not just like the weeping, moaning, like screaming voice of the lady. Yeah. It's it's also just like the creaking of the floorboards that sell the weight of the bear. Yeah. And it's like breath. Like, it's like you can feel how, like, the hot just, like, breath on your face when it's breathing basically into the camera. Yeah. It's really well done. I get why they have to kill the thing at the end. I also think I can imagine that scene being even stronger if it slipped off back into the night after ripping Tinkerbell apart. Because then it's just this like nightmare apparition almost, and yeah. like I kind of felt about that, both that and the alligator of like I, kill, yeah. making them dead. Kind of, I don't know. It kind of undermines the horror of it. Like honestly, also with the alligator, while I think like it's cool and I like all the bits, like it's got like fucking shark teeth. That's pretty a fucking. I like that, but I think it's. Ultimately, like, makes the movie a bit weaker that they even show it at all. Like, I think if it was just something grabbed that character, I think it's the Tessa Thompson character, like, in that shed and dragged her into the water. They, like, have to desperately, like, rip her out, but they never see what it was. I think that would have been more effective. Yeah, I I think probably. And... Because there's just... No matter what... Because it's a cool design for Albino Alligator. But whatever you come up with is going to be like... Oh, what the hell was that? I also don't quite know the physics of how that alligator grabbed her the way it did. She should have been dead. Like, yes, like, yeah. like I don't know how her fucking like all the skin on her legs were not was not ripped off by that alligator. Yes, but anyway, that's, yeah, that's not here today. It's okay. Yes, yeah, spare scene, great. And then I I mark everything from when Natalie Portman arrives at the coast, and there is one shot which is her looking sort of mostly into the camera, side angle. You know, ocean on one side, beach on the other. Big widescreen composition that kind of starts this sequence of the movie. Everything from there 
to the end is phenomenal with a capital P. Yes, absolutely. Because at this point also, like, there's virtually no dialogue from here to the end of the movie. Just little things. You have Oscar Isaac on the tape talking in his weird affected southern accent that he didn't have anywhere else in the movie, which I think is actually a very intentional, wonderful detail. Um, You have Jennifer Jason Leigh gives an inscrutable monologue, but it's great. And then she screams the word, Annihilation! Yes, and then she goes super cyan and bursts. And and then you have the long, long sequence between, um, you know, the, the thing that comes out of that and Natalie Portman's clone person and... Everything that happens between them and the burning of the shimmer and then the last couple scenes back outside. But, like, I feel like we're 55 minutes into this. This should have really been the whole conversation is just this scene. Yeah. Because it is just, it totally feels like up there with some of those, like, avant-garde vignettes in, like, Twin Peaks The Return or something. Yes, yeah. Just, it's, it's visual imagination, it's ingenuity, the precision with which it is pulled off. It feels like they don't miss a single beat in this stretch of the movie. The performances are great. I think it it it's not just how well they pull off those visuals, but that they can even be imagined. Like the thing that Jennifer Jason Lee turns into, and whether or not it is even there in the space, or if it is this thing that is going on in Natalie Portman's mind. Like it's sort of like the color field thing in two thousand one, but it's so much weirder and more alien and yeah. un, completely inexplicable. I just. Every step of the way through this, I, I'm just, both times, riveted. I love it. Yeah, like, it feels like like the end of this movie and all that stuff that happens in the lighthouse after the Jennifer C. Jason Lee character, like, annihilates and turns into basically floating energy if, is, like, the kind of thing that whenever someone just, like, you know, some fucking movie bro is just like, all CGI is bad and, like, CGI is the curse of all movies and anathema to, to good filmmaking. It's like, no... It's like one, like most CGI that is in every fucking movie that is made, you don't even know is there. And it's like, makes, yeah. it's a, like, it is an indelible and like necessary part of modern filmmaking in ways that you're not even like talking about. But also when it's like flashing in your face and it's like the scene is built and could only exist with the special effects, like CGI can be fucking awesome and crazy and weird in a way that like you could not do that like, like evolving Tesseract like bizarre flowing thing that this Jennifer Jason Lee character becomes in practical effects. Like it would be literally impossible. I have no idea. You could, the closest you could get is like doing something weird with like chemicals and water. Probably. I was going to say that there's chemical water stuff you could do that. I actually think it's very clearly based on because that's what good CGI does. It takes some kind of physical element and that's why I think it works. But yeah, no, the way they do it specifically, of course not. And it is an amazing effect, but there's also this consistent thing throughout this movie where I always have trouble in this film understand figuring out what is a CGI effect and what is an in-camera yeah. thing. Particularly when, like, the, uh, I think, like, with the, there's, like, scenes with the thing that comes, like, the walking yes. thing that comes out where it's, like, is in that shot, is it CGI or is it a dude in, like, an outfit? Like, it's it, hard to tell. Or it, it's probably a combination of the two. It's almost certainly a combination, but I also... I liked that I didn't know, yeah. and I think it's intentional, because I'm guessing if Alex Garland wanted to, they could have gone one way or the other more solidly of, like, it's going to just look like a person in the scene, or it's going to look like a CGI alien. Yeah. But it's very much like, it looks very physically present in the world, 
and also not, and that uncanniness to it is really essential to that scene working. So, like, there's just a, a fascinating push and pull in all of that. The special effects throughout this movie, like, the shimmer does not look like CGI to me. Yeah. It has to be. I don't know how else you do that. There's some in-camera things you could do with rainbow effects, but the way it moves and everything, it has yeah, to be CGI. And like, yeah, it, and the yeah. way that it's present in, like, so ever-present in every single shot. Yeah. yeah. Um, I will say I did notice this both times I saw the movie. I'm guessing this is a budget thing. I did notice it feels like the, the the ideal version of this movie probably would have been shot on maybe a nicer digital camera at a higher resolution. Because yeah. I just noticed both times there's like, I think that if the, the image, you know, and this is not a thing you get on film. This is a thing you have to deal with with digital photography. Sort of lacks, I don't know, the kind of punch and warmth of, of really good digital photography or film that would fully sell some of these images to me. It just has kind of a dullness to it sometimes that I think comes from probably being done, shot, and finished at a lower resolution. And I don't know, because I saw it on two screens, both 4K resolution, and it just looked a little kind of undercooked to me. I don't know what that I, is. Like, like, I had a similar feeling seeing it at Denver West, and like, yeah. I had no idea if that was like a yeah. projector thing, and it like, might have been like the bulb was slightly dim or something, and maybe the colors didn't pop because of that. But I, had, I, just, I felt the same way in a lot of moments yeah. in the movie. Because there's no way they would have had the money to like finish this at 4K. Yeah. Most big, huge movies aren't done at 4K. You know, like, I was just reading today, like Justice League. I is I was reading the 4K Blu-ray review of that because I'm just curious about not the movie, but the, those processes. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're saying that's a that even that movie. You know, they spent 300 million on that. That was finished at 2K. You know, so this might have been finished at that or even lower. It was almost certainly not shot higher than that. I don't know. Like this actually feels to me like a movie that its ideal version of itself probably would have been shot on film and then had the digital stuff put in to make it fully tangible. And I'm guessing there's just no way you could have done the cost with that. Like, yeah. Because film is already expensive today and then merging film and digital is more expensive. And yeah. So little thing. I don't begrudge the movie for it. No, I just yeah, noticed it. That it lacks some of that visual oomph. In, but you forget about it in a scene like this. Yes. Yes. I mean, okay. First off, the Oscar Isaac tape scene. <laughs> he gets in, he sits down, and you already realize, oh, he's sitting in the position of that skeleton she saw. Yeah. Is that whole fucking set in the lighthouse with the skeleton there that's like burned and looks like a religious like effigy or something? And then you have all the like like cellular structures on the walls. Yeah. It's just and you have that hole in the ground. You're like she's gonna that's Chekhov's hole. Yeah. She's gonna go in the hole. God, that's one of my favorite things about what they do at the end of the movie. That's like one of my favorite small things is that like the whole movie like like because like the first thing you see in the movie is that lighthouse from a distance. It's like yeah. the whole movie they're trying to get to the lighthouse. And I love that when they get to the lighthouse they're not trying to go to the top of the lighthouse. They're going under the lighthouse. It's yes. like everything else, it's about what's at the top. Because that's what a fucking lighthouse is. It's about what's at the top. And it's like, no, it's about what's, like, you have to dig down underneath. That It's like, it's not about the shining beacon on top. It's about, like, the darkness that's that's underneath all of that. It's so that fucking good. That almost sounds like a thematic thesis statement for the movie. There you go. Yes. Yeah, and luckily no character had to just say that to me in God, this sequence. If, if Russian lady were still alive for the lighthouse, she would have said everything you just said. <laughs> yeah. She would have turned, she's like, Natalie Portman would be like, why do we have to go below? It's because what is at the top is not as important as the darkness below. Yeah. Yes, it would have been terrible. But yes, um... No, it's all, yeah, so I love that, yeah, so Oscar Isaac sits down and he starts, like, and I love his monologue because it's half understandable and half complete batshit inscrutable about, like, I thought I was me, 
but I don't think I'm me anymore. There might be another me. Yeah. Like, like while we're making like endless Twin Peaks: The Return comparisons, it reminds me of the scene where the one guy commits suicide behind the tree with the girlfriend character. I forget who the actor <laughs> a is. Little bit, like, yeah. And he's just like ranting because he's like high on drugs. And yeah. like you catch snippets of it and you're like, I kind of understand what you're talking about. It's like, he says some more. It's like, mm, maybe I don't. Yeah, it's the, the Caleb Landry Jones character. Yeah. And um, no, but I, I love it. And you start to realize over the course of the video that he's talking to someone, not to the video, to a person in the room. Yeah. And there's also this constant tension, especially once you see the movie a second time of, Who's the real, uh, like, Sergeant Kane? Like, yeah. what happened to him? Is it okay to even say there's a real and a fake one? Or one is the clone and one is the original body? Because they seem... Because he also is so accepting of this. I'm going to take a... Once he starts something like, have you ever seen a phosphorus grenade go off? It's like, shield your eyes. It's pretty bright. And again, with that, I, the southern accent comes out of nowhere with, with him. Yeah. This, and it's so great. And he, yeah, and he just holds the phosphorus grenade. He pulls the pin. We do. I think it's smart to go to a shot of... Poor Natalie Portman, you know, having to watch her husband immolate himself. Yeah. And then back to it, he's just holding it, and he, like, looks up, and he just lights on fire, and it's such a powerful image. And then another Oscar Isaac comes in, mm-hmm. and it's the one from the beginning of the movie. With the, the weird scene. slick back hair, yep. fucking slick-ass Oscar Isaac. Yes. Uh, when Oscar Isaac has slick back hair, he's up no good. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's how you know. Yeah, when it's, when it's like, kept. free... He, unkempt and free, it's like I'm gonna follow this dude to the end of the world, slick it back. It's like that's that's what's gonna happen in the next Star Wars movie. He's gonna fall to the dark side, he's fucking gonna... like put some product in his hair and slick it back. It's like, oh no, that's Guess who the real Snoke is, motherfucker. That's what I want to happen. Is Kylo Ren seduces Oscar Isaac to the dark side and he hands Poe a thing of hair gel, and that's how you know he holds out his hand with hair gel in it. No. Um, but yeah, that whole video, and then you come back out of that, and now you know why the room is the way it is. You know that, and again, something happened to Oscar Isaac, and you can put the pieces together and we can make our theories, but I love that it is so just split up and bifurcated. There's no way to fully say what the hell went on in there. Yeah. You know? Because yeah. it was clearly, again, a very different experience. Natalie Portman goes into the hole, Jennifer Jason Lee annihilates. That's that fucking the imagery of as you say the pure energy and the thing that comes out the music at this stretch which we played a little bit of early on in the, in the as our theme song is so good and she has that whole game where she's like mirroring the thing it's just and it becomes like this choreographed almost dance kind of thing going on yeah. it has all these I love that it takes its time going through all this it's just it's pure filmmaking and it's so good yeah and it's it's one of those of especially now that i'm getting into teaching like i whenever i see something like i make a mental note of like hey man if i'm ever teaching a class and we're talking about freud and the doppelganger and the uncanny fucking bookmark this scene because holy shit it's perfect if you want to teach about freud and the uncanny and you want to scar your students well i mean that that goes without saying yeah Actually, that's a good point. What scene about Freud and the Uncanny could you show that wouldn't scar your students? Yeah, that is a good question. If you wanted to do it right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, this scene is so just mesmerizing between everything. Like the sound design, the music, just like the the cinematography and the acting and just the the way that they mirror each other. But it's like... But it's not exactly them mirroring each other, which is another one of the areas where it's like I can't tell... Is that an actor? And so, like, they would never be able to perfectly mirror each other because it's, like, two people trying to pretend to mirror each other. Is it a CGI thing? And it's, like, they're intentionally making it slightly out of sync. It's, like, probably both. Like It, it feels so intentional because, yeah. like, 
if it if you could fully pin down what's happening in this scene, it's it's worthless at that point because yeah. that's not the point. Like you know, this is an interesting alien invasion movie because they are truly invaded by something alien in that you cannot. Un- it is not of this earth. It is not of human perception. You know, and that's what makes these kinds of ideas, especially at this stretch of the movie, so you know powerful and piercing. You know, and. Yeah, all the stuff with the doppelganger and that it's also themed through visuals, right? Yes. It's yeah. it's Natalie Portman at this point. It's a confrontation with another self. It is an act of, of literally another self-immolation that she it's only in the moment when she puts the fucking, you know, phosphorus grenade in that, that the, the the clone becomes Natalie Portman from perfectly yeah. cloned. She even clones down to like the streak of blood in her face and everything. So by the time she immolates it's not even clear anymore which one is which almost, you know? Yeah. I mean, the geography of the scene makes it clear, but there's like a moment where you get confused. All of that. Um, and that the, the Natalie Portman who walks away from that scene, because no one's been talking, because no one's been... We're just watching these events unfold. You can't exactly say what is in her mind anymore. What has what has she drawn from this experience? What is still left of her in there? Yeah. It is just a visual symphony and it works perfectly. Yeah. And then particularly it's the moment where she rushes towards the door and the thing rushes also and is crushing her against yeah, the door. Visceral, and she, yeah. And she can't breathe. Like I think because that's the moment where it's like... Because, you know, like you can have a scene like this and it would be like, oh, it's like uncanny and weird and tense and, and like plays with those things and it's it's kind of surreal with the music and everything. But like I can see a version of that where like it doesn't know what to do with that. Like it's like, like this is a great image, but we don't know where to go. And like and that was kind of like where I was sitting of like, where the fuck is this? Like where do how, how do you develop this idea beyond where like that's not just like a cliche sort of like doppelganger clone thing. That you know is in a million sci-fi stuff, and I think that moment where she rushes towards the door and the thing rushes after her and is crushing her against the door is when I think it like it impacts that like the the themes of of self-destruction and depression and suicidal behaviors and thoughts and feelings. Like that's where I think it like fully connects that together and yeah. just like that sense of this old or new self or this like other self is this weight that is just crushing her and she doesn't know if she wants to be her like like become the new thing be the old thing and like you know the the like experiences and traumas that she's experienced and how that is transforming her is crushing her but is also like needs that's what she needs to become in some ways it's like i think it, it leaves so much up to your own interpretation and what you want to bring to that scene in terms of what you get out of it while also feeling like it is it is saying something powerful. And what you bring out of the scenes with the Oscar Isaac and, yeah. and her and the and the flashbacks and that and with the uh the the character who she's having the affair with and that, you know, it it all kind of keeps coming back to that affair that she has, but it's also none of those flashbacks I think are reducible just to infidelity and right. all of that is carried forward in the movie. Yeah, it's Again, when this movie is operating on like pure visuals and audio, it is a a visual symphony. It's like a good piece of music. You can't concretely point out exactly what it is saying at all times, but that's why you can draw so much out of it. And it feels so precise in that sometimes imprecision of, of what's going on. You know, it's not always completely clear, but you're right. That image of her getting crushed by her own self is extremely powerful, whether in the moment you know exactly what it means or not. Yeah. And I just, again, it's why this, 
you know, I, I should I said earlier I didn't maybe like this movie. I do like this movie. I want to be clear. I like this movie a lot. Where do I come down on, is it the best version of itself it can be? No. no. And is it a compromised version of itself? Yes, because the things it does best are sometimes squashed by its own other self, you know? Yeah. And it has that own duality to it, too. And that's okay. Movies don't have to be perfect, you know? Yeah. Um, and... You know, this still, I think for me, like, I thought Alex Garland was, I've always thought he's an interesting writer, thought he was a very interesting director after Ex Machina. I don't think this is as good a movie on the whole as Ex Machina. I think its highs are higher. I think that last half hour is higher than anything in Ex Machina. It's not as cohesive a film. It makes me so excited for him as a director just into the future, though. Like, he's the real deal. He is not a one-hit wonder. He's not someone who you know, writes and then gets into directing and proves to not be that interesting a director. I think he has a really clear directorial voice and an essential voice for sci-fi. And I hope this movie getting kind of buried is not the end of the road for him on that level. Oh, yeah, no, because I, I like it quite a bit, even with, like, its clunky stuff. Where there is one more, you know, in as is perfect for this movie, I feel like there's one more piece of really clunky dialogue after this in the, in, when you go back to the interview uh, with yeah. Natalie Portman and his character and she's, and they're like interrogating her about like the thing and it's like, and so it tried to attack you. It's like, no, I don't think it tried to attack me. I think it was trying to mirror me in some way. It's like, I know! Like, yeah, no, that's... like, why is this line of dialogue here? It's so pointless. That's a little clunky, but right after that is one of my favorite exchanges where Benedict Wong keeps asking her questions and she says, I don't know, I don't know, I don't, to every one of them. And it's essentially the end of the movie at this point. And I just, there's something so subversively awesome about a, you know, a ho- theoretically big Hollywood sci-fi movie where the end is the character going... What about this mystery? I don't know. What about this mystery? I don't know. What about this? I don't know. Like, there's just something about that that let... Like, the character giving you verbal confirmation of the I don't know, I think, is a really good note to essentially verbally end the movie on. Yeah. Because it reinforces that unknowability. And then you go into that final scene with Oscar Isaac where they embrace and her eyes are shifting and, you know, they have both transformed. I thought of this also as, like, they've become these aliens' new... Adam and Eve figures almost in their own little sure. scientific Eden of now, like the idea, you know, this invasion was successful because this couple was completely transformed and maybe the shimmer was never the focus, you know, because yeah. that shimmer burned, that shimmer burning down is an amazing series of images. We should yes, say. Yeah. And like the crystal trees crumbling yep. and all that. Yeah. But great. it also feels like, you know, if they didn't want it to burn down, they probably wouldn't have let it. <laughs> To some degree, you know? Like, I think they might have accounted for the phosphorus grenade at some point. Sure. And it feels like they got what they wanted anyway, if you want to go that concrete with any of it. Yeah, know? but then it's also just like the... I, I like the point of... Because I feel like the movie is pretty visually clear that... Like, the Natalie Portman that we followed into the lighthouse is the Natalie Portman that comes out. Yes, yes, no, and totally. Like, yeah, but it's not... Like, she is not the doppelganger. The doppelganger was destroyed... But, like, but the point isn't that, like, it's she was replaced. It's that, like, no matter what happens, like, she is transformed by the experiences. Yeah, yeah. And, like, she can't go back to being the person that she was before because, like, she has, she's carrying this trauma, this depression with her. It's a perfect ending for this kind of movie because it works thematically, aesthetically, narratively, all yeah. in complete, utter tandem. Yes. Right? And, it's, and it is, like, an ending that then you're going to get a bunch of annoying people, like, having the argument about, like, no, like, it's, like, it must mean that she was actually an alien person. It's like, fuck it, I, that's not, I don't give a shit. No. Also, this movie has the best fucking end credits 
those like swirling colors like it's a kaleidoscope that alone take out the credits leave the music in because i love the music great little avant-garde short film like animated short it's just fucking great like that I just I both times I just sat through the credits to watch yeah, that. Me it's too. so it's good. really good. I was I was hoping for a post credit scene at the end of the swirling credits where the, Samuel L. Jackson comes in as they're embracing and says, "We're building a team." No, where where Chris Hemsworth pops up is like, "Jane, you've been through some <laughs> weird shit." And he's got like it's like I know like I've fucking cut my hair. I got an eye patch. Like I've been through some stuff. I think there's I, there's Thanos is coming down. We need your help, but. Maybe you sit this one out, Jay. I think, you know, Paramount, when when they saw the movie finally, they were like, fuck, we're contractually obligated to release this in North America. We're going to sell it to Netflix everywhere else. I think what they should have done is sold it to Marvel, <laughs> just renamed and like dubbed it. She's Jane Foster. Yeah, the Jane whole Foster in Annihilation. You have to be Jane. Just leave the rest of the movie the same. It's Jane Foster. It's Marvel C. Just get people in. And then, yes, mid credit scene where Chris Hemsworth busts in, and that's the connection to Marvel. And then he like slowly, like Homer going, like Homer Simpson going back yeah, into the bushes. He's just truck. like, yeah, he's just like, leans out of there. He's like, <laughs> all righty, that's enough of that. And uh, we continue on. I think that would be the best version of Annihilation. Yes, I agree. It would solve all my issues with the exposition and everything if Thor showed up at the end. Tessa Thompson can also just be playing Valkyrie yeah. from like an alternate timeline or something. Yes. yes. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we have fixed Annihilation. We figured yeah. out how to how to make this movie perfect. Yes, the, the, our... it, it turns out it was a lot easier than we thought at the beginning of this podcast. I feel like we've gone Chris, on a journey. I think Chris Hemsworth could solve a lot of the world's problems. I agree. He's he is an attractive, funny man. I don't know if I want to end it there. He had nothing to do with this episode. No, he yeah no. I mean, but he all, he has something to do with every episode as long as I'm on this podcast in my heart. 